The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Corinthians 2.6 and read to the end of that chapter. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And this is God's own holy word. The scene told about in newspaper articles, it's on the internet, you can find it there if you desire, was a scene in the Washington, D.C. metro system one weekday morning. An ordinary day as hundreds of people were rushing through this metro station to get a train and go to their jobs in the nation's capital. Nothing appeared to be particularly abnormal. One little thing, a man was playing a violin in the corner of the station. If you move about large cities, go into the central city, Philadelphia, you would find this occasionally, a musician on a street corner playing an instrument. And that's what was happening here. The man kept his post playing the violin with some obvious skill, for uh, playing great composers like Tchaikovsky and other rather difficult classical music. But people rushed past. They were all preoccupied, maybe trying to read uh, the Washington Post as they walked along or working their phones as they went. You know how people are today. Some noticed the music and thought, wow, that's pretty good. And they might have emptied some change out of their pocket into the violin case at the man's 
feet, maybe here and there a few dollar bills fluttered down. By the way, at the end of the hour, he received $37. Well, hardly one person in a hundred showed a spark of recognition that this was anyone or anything that out of the ordinary. And yet on this particular day, the violinist who was dressed in jeans and an open-collar shirt was not a destitute music student who was trying to get his rent money or food money to finance his education. Instead, there was a social experiment being filmed, and it's on YouTube and has been seen by, I'm told, three million people. Yes, I know what YouTube is, believe it or not. (laughs) Our young people, I'm sure, thought that was not possible. The handsome man in his 40s who was playing the violin with great beauty and skill in the D.C. metro station happened to be world-famous virtuoso Joshua Bell. Josh Bell is a violinist who has wowed audiences since his teenage years, appearing with orchestras everywhere, appearing in all the famous concert halls. A Washington Post article told about the experiment that was being done that day The fact that despite the exquisite quality of his music, 98% of the commuters did not guess that anything special was there or that anyone special was playing. They certainly did not guess that the violin Josh Bell was playing on was a $3 million Stradivarius, one of the most outstanding violins probably on the planet. Here was an outstanding instrument in the hands of a master producing music of delightful depth and power of expression that concertgoers at Carnegie Hall would have rose as one body and applauded with a standing ovation had they heard the very same thing played for them. And yet it went unrecognized. People were mostly absolutely oblivious. Now, you may ask me what in the world this has to do, this true incident. What does it have to do with our study of the Word of God? I say absolutely everything. Because God has communicated sacred revelation to us from out of His own mind and heart, out of His own eternal plans and will. He has put this revelation into languages that men can understand through human men in whom we've studied in previous weeks, the Holy Spirit breathed out, not violating their personalities and their minds, but letting it be such that what they said was what God said. God has done all that. And the great mass of humanity hears the words of Scripture, and what do they do? Do they fall on their faces and say, Oh, my God is speaking. Or do they rush by with more interest in what's on their iPhone or their morning paper, not comprehending that in the Bible they are ignoring the music, the poetry, the wisdom, the insight, the mysteries of God's own mind and heart. You see, John chapter 1 told us that's the way it was with Jesus Christ when he came into the world as God incarnate. God in the garb of human flesh, of a man of Palestine. John 1 says, the true light came into the world. He was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world did not receive him. 
John 1.13 says it required a new birth. A birth not of mere human generation, but of the Spirit of God, if a human being was to see who Jesus Christ was and call him Lord and Savior. That, my friends, is exactly the parallel truth of what must happen with the Word of God. Without a rebirth in you caused by the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God. Would you stop over that phrase for just a moment? The Word of God. What God speaks is of no consequence to most people unless the Holy Spirit of God opens our minds. The Holy Spirit who inspired it, who was the wind in the sails of those authors, is also the illuminator, we say. The one who illumines, casts light on the Scripture just as he once gave it, now again opens it to our understanding by illumination. Last Sunday, I showed you five examples of how the Bible provides a self-authenticating witness. God's fingerprints are on it, I said, in things like fulfilled prophecy, like the power that is evidently in the book to simply change human lives as they read it. We're taking that last idea further today as I pursue that and say to you with the word of Scripture behind me, no one derives God-intended benefit from Scripture unless the Holy Spirit enlivens and enlightens that and causes that to happen. We can admire Scripture without the Holy Spirit, and many, many people do this, You can tell. uh, I don't think it's quite as common as it was once, but I know when I was a boy it was very common to go into homes and somebody had a great big Bible, family Bible, and it was on the sideboard or the coffee table or some prominent bookshelf in the house. And it was like an icon, almost like something not exactly worshipped, but it was there out of great respect. There's our family Bible. As a little boy, I didn't go around saying, when did you read it last? But I probably wondered that, and sometimes pretty thick dust coating on it. And it was clear that the people were making a statement with that book there. Well, we honor the Bible. We believe the Ten Commandments. We think the Sermon on the Mount is great. Jesus is great. We honor the Bible. It's kind of just about like the American flag, you know. They were the same people who had their hands over their heart at the Fourth of July parade when the flag went by. We honor the Bible. Do they love the Bible? Are their hearts and minds awakened by the Bible? Have they been brought alive by the truths of the Bible? Are they delving into the Bible on a daily basis? Do they have the awakening action of the Spirit of God? In just a moment, I'm going to try to unpack 1 Corinthians 2 here a little bit. But before I do that, I would put before you another text, not a biblical text, a human text from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's actually in the back of your hymnal if you don't know that. The Westminster Confession, the document from several hundred years ago that is one of the greatest doctrinal formulations ever done, in chapter 1 lays down foundational beliefs in what the Bible is. Saying in so many words, we can't talk about doctrine until we talk about where does doctrine come from. It comes from the Word of God. Well, what do we believe about the Word of God? Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, 
I'm going to give you the main crux of paragraph 5, a little bit of editing just for length. There we read, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem for the Scripture. You see, respect for the Scripture. That's what I was just talking about. And we can respect the heavenliness of its matter, the efficacy of its doctrine, the majesty of its style, and the consent of all the parts. That's what we were talking about last time. We can say it abundantly evidences itself to be the Word of God, and yet, and yet, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divinity thereof comes from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word to our hearts. You hear what that's saying? It's a little bit of older language from an earlier century, but it's saying we're talking about more than respect. We're talking about more than fulfilled prophecy. We're talking about more than a united theme across all those books with 40 authors and 1,500 years of writing. We're talking about the need for a full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth, and that comes from the inward work of the Holy Spirit. We can be impressed by the fingerprints of God on it, but we must be convinced of God, the author, and only the Holy Spirit brings that home to us with conviction and assurance. Now I ask you to look at 1 Corinthians 2 here and be a little briefer with the exegesis of this. But first of all, verses 6 to 8, make this assertion. To the natural mind, the Bible begins as a locked vault of God's hidden wisdom. To the natural mind, the Bible begins as a locked vault of God's hidden wisdom. Starting in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is discussing with the church of Corinth situated right in the middle of what was ancient Greece, one of the greatest civilizations of all times. By the way, the Romans wouldn't have been much if there hadn't been the Greeks before them. They borrowed all over the place all the good stuff that the the Greeks had and added some good things of their own. But Greek civilization was certainly the pinnacle of civilization in Europe well before the time of Christ. And people who lived there, people who lived in Corinth in Paul's time, still sort of gloried in that. Oh, you know, we had the great philosophers. We had the great thinkers. And Paul had to bring them down a few pegs. Look up in the beginning uh, above there, starting about verse 18 of chapter 1, where he's saying the word of the cross is folly to some people, and, and it destroys the wisdom of the wise. Where is the wise one? Where's the scribe? And so on. Paul is saying, you guys aren't all you think you are in the wisdom of this world. To you, the wisdom of God is folly. And he had to correct them about that and, and devalue. He wasn't saying human wisdom was of no value, but it certainly was not of ultimate value. And then in 2.7 here, what I've read, Paul was saying, I've got something much better than worldly wisdom and philosophy. I've got the secret hidden wisdom of God decreed before all the ages for our glory. That's quite a statement there. The secret and hidden wisdom of God, the thoughts of God going back to primordial times before there was a a written scripture. What was God thinking? We know that because we have it recorded, Paul was saying, in the scripture. It's 
before our ages, but it's for us to experience the glory of it. And he says, rulers of the present age didn't know this. Caesar, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they didn't know this. Paul says if they had, what would have happened? They would not have crucified the Lord of glory, verse 8. Now, we know that God's wisdom isn't some secret thing anymore. It is nothing more nor less than the cross of Christ, the plan of God for the salvation of those who would believe, those whom God had known from all eternity would be awakened in Christ and show faith in him. Now it's known. It was locked up tight. You see, it's as if he was saying this was what the Trinity talked about in time before there was time, in the councils of eternity. Now it's known. This isn't a wisdom that you can get access to by getting a philosophy PhD at at Harvard or Penn or Yale or someplace. This is the great knowledge of God himself that he has made known. He's unlocked it. Well, how has he unlocked it? That's our second point, verses 9 to 13. The apostle says, only the Holy Spirit has the key to open God's vault of hidden truth. It's wonderful truth. It's truth you can't even guess at how many splendors are in it. He quotes from Isaiah 64. Your Bible probably has uh, verse 9 of the text set apart, uh, and that's because that's a quote uh, lifting Isaiah 64, 4 and quoting it here. What no eye has seen, no ear heard, or the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, this is what he has now revealed. Think of that. Things that people couldn't even imagine because they're so splendid. I think it was my generation that, uh, you know, we brought, that we baby boomers invented all kinds of phrases and words, especially in the 60s and onward. And one of those phrases was that something would blow your mind. You've heard that one before. Came from my generation. And Paul is saying, truth that would blow your mind that you can't even begin to put together or dream about is what God has revealed in his word. Notice verse 10, it says, this is truth drawn out of the depths of God, God's very identity. Verse 11, it portrays the very thoughts of God. If you say, what did God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit talk about before they created the world? Well, I think that's what Paul's speaking about here the councils of the Trinity, things that you couldn't imagine or have any insight to, God, by this Holy Spirit, has opened them up as they're in his word, and now the Spirit gives a new birth and illumines believers to be able to understand these things. The interior thoughts of the Most High God. Now you say, well, how does the Holy Spirit do this? I thought the Holy Spirit you know, gave awakening. You may know the word regeneration or new birth. We talk about being born again. Certainly the Bible talks about that. John 3 says, unless you are born anew, you cannot see the kingdom of God. An inquirer to Jesus by night, it was a very wise man himself, didn't have any idea. He could go, how in the world am I supposed to be born again? He didn't get it first time around. But the spiritual birth, new birth you need, doesn't only introduce you to salvation. It does that, of course. 
It is the recognition of who Christ is and what he has done and and the taking hold, embracing of him in faith that says, yes, I want that new life of Christ. I want cleansing in his blood. I want the life of resurrection hope that he died and rose again for. That's new birth. But there's more to it than that. There's also the enlightenment of the mind, the opening of the mind to see God's truth that you couldn't see the same way before. A very vivid illustration uh, sticks out to me from the life of young Theodore Roosevelt a hundred years ago. Roosevelt, you may know, was born to a wealthy family. His father uh, actually did was involved in various works, and uh, especially philanthropic work that he did, but he was a very rich man who didn't need to work. And it's fascinating to me that a man with all that money, a man who could snap his fingers and summon a doctor to his New York fashionable townhouse, never was aware that his young son Theodore had terrible eyesight, nor was Theodore aware of it. He thought if he was sitting with his tutor, he had private tutors most of his childhood, in the room given as a classroom, and the blackboard was 15 feet away, and he couldn't read the numbers on the board, He didn't think anybody else could read numbers from 15 feet away either. He thought that was normal. And his parents never sent him to an eye doctor until somehow one day they realized, I think there's a problem with Theodore's eyes. They went, they said, you're almost blind. And he got his first pair of very strong glasses. Imagine that. I think he was 9 or 10. Imagine the world for young Theodore Roosevelt. He could read numbers on the board 50 feet away now, not 10 feet. He could read books in in a whole different way. He could see all kinds of things that he had never... And he thought, wow, is this what the world is really like? Is this what everybody sees? I can't believe it. Well, that's what it's like for a Christian whose mind and heart and spirit are awakened by the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to God. This new birth belongs to every Christian. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. This new birth gives us assurance and gives us standing and ability to see the things that God sees. So thirdly, I say, and I'm not going to emphasize the last part of this text too much, but verses 14 to 16 tell us that without the Spirit of God, no human mind can come alive to the Bible. We shouldn't be that surprised that there are professors with PhDs who write articles tearing the Bible up left and right. They make academic reputations out of coming up with some odd theory that really isn't in accord with facts, but people crowd to hear it because it's odd, because it's different. They've never heard it before. But the point is, this question often comes to us. People will challenge us, and they will say, well, I don't think the Bible could be everything that you say it is. For this reason, if it really is the very words and thoughts of God, why are so many people on earth able to just ignore it and not see the importance of it? Why is that, Pastor? Why isn't the Bible more universally acclaimed and understood? Well, I'll tell you why. The answer isn't hard at all. 1 Corinthians 2. It is that way because the great mass of people lack the illumination of the Holy Spirit to receive 
the truth of the Bible. Remember the opening illustration, the D.C. subway station and the maestro playing the violin. People didn't know, by and large, who Josh Bell was. They don't go to violin concerts. People don't know the difference between a Stradivarius and a cheap fiddle. People aren't trained enough, by and large, in music appreciation that they can tell the difference between sort of good music and truly great music. And so they went on their way oblivious. And I say to you that unless and until the Holy Spirit of God awakens a man or a woman with a spiritual new birth, those people, the great mass of humanity, are deaf and dumb and blind towards divine revelation. You might as well ask a six-year-old child who is fully blind. Now, I said six years old because they're very young and they wouldn't be reading Shakespeare even if they did have eyesight, but they don't have eyesight. So I'm talking about a six-year-old child whose intellectual gifts aren't there yet and their eyes aren't there and they can't read Shakespeare. You might as well ask the blind six-year-old to give you a lecture on the fine points of Shakespeare's plays. Not going to happen, is it? Not, you say, well, that's ridiculous. First of all, they can't see. Secondly, they're six, and they can't be expected to have that kind of intellectual comprehension. That's exactly what we have with people who express ignorance with the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, this ends on something I'm not emphasizing that much, but I feel I must at least quickly speak to it because it's there. Verse 16, the conclusion of the chapter, is a climactic word, and it sounds like an awfully boastful word as Paul writes it when he says, but, in other words, this is how we're different from that worldly person, we have, we believers in Christ who have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. Is that a mere arrogant boast on Paul's part? I think not. It is not saying we are omniscient, that we know everything that God knows. Never, ever, ever assume that. Never assume you have arrived in spiritual knowledge. The Bible says elsewhere that when we are with God in eternity, we will know even as we are known. It does seem to imply a depth and a breadth and a width and a height of knowledge that is so much greater than what we have now. But what we do have now that should not make us arrogant because we haven't earned it is a knowledge revealed to us of the grand plan of the incarnation of Christ, the death, the resurrection, the glorification of Christ, his rule at God's right hand. We have enough, in other words, to make us biblical insiders not biblical outsiders. We're not on the outside saying, what in the world is that book about? We're on the inside saying, wow, look at what God has said. Look at what God has revealed, what he has made known to us. And the more we study and the more we go on, the more God tends to reveal to us. I end with a story today. I began with a story. I end with one. About a man, you can look this up if you want. His story is on the Internet. It's in a lot of places. You've probably never heard of him, though. The man's name is Emile Caillé, C-A-I-L-L-I-E-T, Emile Caillé. He was a Frenchman born in the early 
very early 20th century or maybe the last few years of the 19th century, I'm not sure. I know that he fought in World War I for France against the Germans. I know that he was wounded in the trenches. I know that he saw horrible things, atrocities, and suffering that hardened him and caused him uh, just a great dismay as many people. He came out of that war with a hardened spirit, an atheistic spirit. He said he wanted nothing to do with religion and particularly Christianity. Somehow he blamed Christianity for World War I, maybe because the Germans had on their belt buckles, God mittens, God with us. After the war, Emile Caillet became a professor, and by the way, he ended up eventually at Princeton and Penn. He was early on in France teaching the classics and teaching philosophy, but he was a great reader, and he could read rapidly. And he would go and read all kinds of books, poetry, philosophy, history, political science, and any time he found something he thought was particularly inspiring that that really spoke to him, he wrote it down as a quote. And he he began a huge journal, a a big bound book that he would put all these quotes in and date when he found it and who who it was by and so on. Cahiers, by his own pronouncement, said, I long to find a book that would understand me. So he made his own of quotes that were meaningful to him. He built up this notebook and thought that he was building a book of instruction and meaning for life. One day, he'd been at this a long time, and he had a pretty thick book, and he thought, I'm going to sit down and reread my book from cover to cover. He did that, and he said, it was amazing what dismay it brought to me. Because even though I could see that the quotes in themselves were inspiring, I realized one central fact. I, I, me, was the filter through which all those quotes had come. In other words, the meaning, the structure, the worldview of that book was mine. And it seemed very disappointing. It seemed very weak. He said, I wanted a book that spoke with some outside authority from just myself. In the providence of God, that very same day that he had that reading and was disappointed with his book, His wife was out shopping, walking in their French town. She had a child with her in a baby buggy, and she had gotten some groceries. And coming back in the tangled streets of the little French town, somehow she got confused and went down a street that she hadn't before and realized she was a little bit disoriented, didn't know exactly where she was. And she was about to turn around and go back when she saw an open door. And it it appeared to be cool inside this building, and she... thought she might rest from the heat for a bit, so she went in. She was entering a French Protestant church, a Huguenot church. The pastor was there, and he saw her with her baby buggy, and he said, ma'am, may I assist you? Can I do anything for you? She was about to ask directions, but instead of asking directions, without knowing why she said this, later she testified, especially knowing my husband's anti-religious bias, I don't know why I said this, but I said to the pastor, could I possibly get a Bible? And he gave her a Bible. She came back home and came in the house and told her husband where she'd been and what she did and the story of the Bible. She was a little fearful of how he would react. And Emile Caillé said to his wife, A Bible, you say? Let me have it. 
And she was thinking, well, he's going to grab it and burn it or tear it up or something because he hates the Bible, or at least he says he does. But the professor grabbed the Bible and went to his study with it and began to read it. He read the Bible that he said he had hated for the first time. This is, and by the way, how many millions of people there are in the world who hate the Bible, who don't have a clue about what it says? Emile Caillé read the Bible. He read it through the afternoon. He read it past the supper hour. He read it into the evening. He had to get some candles and light them as he read it well into the early watches of the night. And he said, as I was engrossed in reading that book, an indescribable warmth surged through me. I was reading about the Jesus of the Gospels when the fact exploded upon my consciousness. Suddenly I realized here was the book that understands me. Here in the Bible is the presence of the living God. And somewhere in that night I prayed, and the God who answered me was the God who spoke in his living book. I strongly suspect that you own a Bible. If you come here to church, you probably have one. It may be in your lap right now, or it may be at home. Maybe there are any number of them in your home. I'm asking as we close today whether you've ever read that Bible with Holy Spirit eyeglasses on. You say, how do I do that? It's actually pretty simple. I ask you to pray this prayer. I'm going to close with this prayer. You can bow with me. Living God, I come to the Bible, and I desire to know if it really is from you. God, I pledge to read my way through the four Gospels, line by line, and I ask your Spirit to reveal to me what the French professor found out. Will you please, by your Spirit, do what the psalmist prayed for? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen.